spread in circuses is the cancer of democracy, the fatal disease for which there is no cure. Democracy often works beautifully at first, but once a state extends the franchise to every warm body, be he producer or parasite, that day marks the beginning of the end of the state. For when the plebs discover that they can vote themselves bread and circuses without limits, and that the productive members of the body politic cannot stop them, they will do so until the state bleeds to death or in its weakened condition the state succumbs to an invader. The barbarians enter Rome and we embrace the void. The universe is a cruel, uncaring void. The key to being happy isn't to search for meaning, it's to just keep yourself busy with unimportant nonsense and eventually you'll be dead. Stop fighting it. You're gonna be okay. Face the void. Call it a one-way vacation to the void. Warning. This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Welcome, friends, to episode 166 of Embrace the Void, where we've shifted to a whole new worst possible timeline. I am your host, Aaron, and this week we are talking cancer pseudoscience, so I'm going to start my breathing exercises right now. All life ends in death, which we, as a species, are cursed with knowing, resulting in... something. My guest this week is Alice Howarth co-host of the Skeptics with a K podcast and postdoc in pharmacology at the University of Liverpool. Alice, would you like to say hi to the void? Hello, thank you very much for having me. So much, uh, thanks so much for coming on. Really happy to chat. I really love uh, your work on Skeptics with a K and everything y'all are doing over at Merseyside. So happy to have you on to discuss some of that uh, science and pseudoscience skepticism. Um, so you, like many of us skeptics, have kind of a mild-mannered normal gig as well as your skepticing by night. Do you want to maybe let folks know a little bit about your double life and how you feel like those things tie together for you? Yeah, so um, my, so the two things that I'm interested in kind of go hand in hand, really. So I'm, I'm a, a research scientist uh, by day. That is my day job. I, I work in the University of Liverpool. I work on um, the pharmacology of nanomedicines and how those things travel through the body. And before that, I worked in cancer research, understanding at a molecular level how cancer works, how cancer cells look different to normal cells and things like that. Um, and so I'm spending all of my day job doing experimental design, critical thinking, trying to understand how we can analyse questions from every angle and actually get ask those questions in an intelligent way that gives us an, a real answer. Mm -hmm. um, and then, of course, in my free time, I spend all of this time doing scepticism and applying critical thinking to lots and lots of different topics. So I'm kind of trained in, in applying that critical thinking through my, my academic background. But it also gives me a lot of a leg up in understanding the science behind how things work. So even if I'm starting mm -hmm. to look at things related to scepticism that are not uh, your, the things that are my area of expertise, I can do mm -hmm. quite a quick and easy deep dive into the science because I spend so much of my time doing that and scientific and academic training gives you the tools to be able to do that, to jump into different areas of expertise and really get your head around how the science works. I'm curious, do you find that that expertise, I, mean, I assume it's obviously valuable in a lot of ways, is also sort of a disadvantage maybe sometimes because you're sort of so far removed from the perspective that a lot of people might be approaching this information with? Or, or, or also just that, like, is it a struggle for you as an individual who knows how these things actually work to be willing to, like, slow down and parse through the, like, very fictionalized versions of science that you're often dealing with in these skeptical uh, materials? Yeah, I think it is hard. I think, I think it's a problem that a lot of scientists have, especially, and it's something that I'm especially conscious of because I'm aware that a lot of scientists um, find this particularly difficult. You know, first and mm -hmm. foremost, I am a human. 
I'm a human who mm. exists in the human world and interacts with other humans. I have just, friends just and family. Just out in the open. All right, <laughs> I, you know, so I, I'm, I'm engaging at the same level as every other human being. And then when it comes to the actual science, I kind of, sometimes it's hard because I have to remember when and how I learned something to remember if it's common knowledge mm-hmm. or not, especially when I'm trying mm-hmm. to communicate on a, on, you know, complicated. I, I really like to communicate very complicated scientific concepts to a completely lay audience because I think that's utterly essential to doing good science. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I have to try and figure out how do I say this without dumbing it down for people because I I absolutely don't want to patronize people that I'm talking to but also how do I actually simplify the concepts because my understanding of it is based on a huge back catalog of scientific understanding and none of that's relevant to the everyday person and then mm-hmm. trying to understand how lay people interacting with science as they do every single day of their lives like this is mm-hmm. it's everywhere in our lives how they might use their understanding to interpret things in a different way. And that's that's hard to get your head around because we all think slightly differently. But trying to yeah. see the ways, that, the ways that things can be misinterpreted or misunderstood and how that's not the fault of the person. They're not, they're not willfully misunderstanding the science or even the fault of the person communicating. You know, we talk about cases where there's a pseudoscientist talking to a patient and maybe even the pseudoscientist isn't intentionally, intentionally, willfully misrepresenting the science, but there's something going wrong there. And how do we understand all of those different elements of that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And I want to talk about your process on what you find to be functional. But I think it was a good point there that we should also talk a little bit about sort of what is the mindset that you find that people are coming to this material with so first of all i wanted to ask you this is just a personal issue of my my own i know it's a little bit outside your realm of expertise but in my experience whenever somebody gets sick in media or art of any sort in the modern world like 95 percent of the time it's cancer yeah and i'm curious what your sense is why that is the case is that proportional to the amount of people who are actually getting sick of cancer versus other things or is there some sort of weird cultural fixation going on here it's not proportional in the sense of that every time someone gets sick, it's cancer. That's definitely not proportional. Mm. More, more commonly than not, somebody gets sick and it's something else. But I think it's proportional to our, our, how we relate to cancer because it is an incredibly common set of diseases um, mm-hmm. and everybody knows somebody whose life has been touched by cancer. So one in two people will be diagnosed with cancer at some point in their lifetime. That's over their entire lifetime. So it's not like you're constantly on the edge of being diagnosed with cancer, but chances are, if you mm-hmm. live long enough, you will be diagnosed with cancer. And that means that every single person you interact with also has a one in two chance of being diagnosed with cancer at some point in their lifetime. So you're going to interact mm-hmm. with a lot of people in a lifetime who have or are experiencing diagnosis with cancer, treatment for cancer and various elements related to that. And so it's really at the forefront of our consciousness. Everybody knows somebody who is going through it or has gone through it or has lost a family member or they lose a family member themselves. And so it's really relevant Mm -hmm. to everybody. And I think that's why it makes an interesting story for people because everybody can relate to it. That makes sense. And it, and it also then raises a worry for me is, is you know, I'm curious what you as someone doing this kind of work with cancer and trying to talk to individuals, how you look at media portrayals of cancer and cancer treatment and whether you think that they are generally doing more harm or more good. I guess I, because I, what I, I worry about is that like taking advantage of the fact that everyone has that personal experience of knowing someone who has cancer. I feel like a lot of writers often use cancer as a, a cheap way to increase the stakes in stories, right? Yeah. Much the same way that they use uh, violence against women as a cheap way to raise stakes in stories a lot of the time. Um, I'm curious if that's if that gels with your experience of that kind of media or if you feel like um, all of the different portrayals of, of cancer out there are, are fairly good for people. It's definitely an issue that um, cancer is 
it, it's become a lifestyle story. So you get a lot of these cases, particularly when it comes to person diagnosed with cancer. Uh, you know, a classic story we see, person diagnosed with cancer, um, saw their medical uh, practitioner, reached a point where the treatment wasn't working or the, the, the prognosis wasn't good or there weren't treatments available anymore. So they're, they're crowdfunding for some form of treatment elsewhere outside of the UK in, in the cases of um, stories over here. And isn't it a feel good story that the whole community are getting behind them and they're cycling across the country to raise money for this, this individual who's raising money for some cancer mm -hmm. treatment. And it is, it's pitched as a, a, good, a feel good lifestyle story. The problem is that an awful lot of those particular stories, and you will see them in in local newspapers across the country in the UK, and you will see them in, they will get amplified up into national newspapers as well. And I'm sure you see these sorts of stories all over the media in America as well. Um, mm -hmm. Often the treatments that they're crowdfunding for are pseudoscientific treatments mm. that, that are not going to help them in any way. They're not going to prolong their life. And maybe they're going to spend tens of thousands of pounds trying to get this treatment, maybe even travel abroad to try and get this treatment, spend time away from their family when they might have limited time and just generally put themselves through sometimes quite horrific treatments um, that aren't actually going to benefit them in any way when in fact they could spend some time with their families. If, you know, if they are in this kind of case this hypothetical example that I'm giving where they've right. they've reached the end of the road and there are no other treatments, they could use that time to spend time with their friends and family and really connect with people. And instead that they're, they're jumping for these treatments and the media really proliferates these stories because they f see them as feel good life lifestyle stories. They get everywhere mm -hmm. and, and they're shared far and wide and they never do the update when the treatment didn't work. And they might even advertise the treatment in that story and then people kind of follow that route and oh well I saw somebody in the newspaper who was doing this treatment and maybe that treatment could work for me and then multiple people kind of follow down that route and you never get the update so the, there's a problem with those sorts of stories in the media but then there's also a major problem in the media with stories that are not related to a specific patient that are just if you eat blueberries you will reduce your risk of cancer or if you take mm -hmm. turmeric you will cure your cancer and all of these kind of fluffy stories that feel harmless about the the latest cancer cure or the latest cancer treatment and again it's it's putting out into the world these treatments that don't work and legitimizing mm -hmm. them by putting them through huge media corporations that are you know putting their name to it and advertising yeah. these treatments that don't work and it's incredibly damaging incredibly dangerous yeah i could definitely I see that sort of thing out there and i'm curious you mentioned you know uh we're, we were talking across cultures a little bit here right in your neck of the woods like normal medicine is paid for in a functional way and then yes. you mentioned like the majority of those GoFundMes are for alternative medicine i'm curious i don't know if you have any information about whether in places like america if the majority of GoFundMes and things like that are also often tending to go towards these kinds of internal alternative medicines, or if a larger proportion are just going towards, you know, normal paying off the crippling bills that we experience yeah. when we get sick in America. <laughs> it's definitely an interesting question. Um, and, and I'm not, I'm not, I don't have it to hand any, any data on that. Um, but I can okay. imagine that, you know, it's likely that you would have quite a lot of cases where people are crowdfunding for pseudoscience in America because I think mm -hmm. if you if you've got health insurance, your insurer is more likely to pay for legitimate treatment than pseudoscience. I would hope. So for people who have health insurance, I'm, I'm not even remotely. That's true. I mean, it's probably true in the sense that it will pay for as few things as possible, and it's yeah. easier. Well, like I'm not even convinced it's easier to get approval for normal medicine. Than <laughs> It's definitely a different world over there. Oh God, it's horrible. I mean, it's so bad. And like, I'll, I'll talk. We'll talk in a second about my like personal experiences with it. But like, I think this is really valuable to just get at this. Like, some of the most useful information it seems to me is just like, what are the most common 
misconceptions that you find like 90% of normal human beings are carrying around with regard to this broad category of illnesses we call cancer um, that they've picked up on from all of this media representation? The biggest thing is, is, and, and this isn't really a pseudoscience. This is, this is something that uh, is a failure of science communication more than anything that, but I think it's really harmful that there's a cure right around the corner mm. that we that we will cure cancer if we try hard enough if we throw enough money at it we will cure cancer full stop within x number of years and obviously we're making huge progress we've we've doubled survival rates in the last 40 years um we are much better at diagnosing cancer we are much better at treating it um but it is a hundred and more a hundred and more complicated different diseases mm-hmm. that all do slightly different things and behave slightly differently. And yes, some forms of cancer we may be able to cure. Certainly some forms of skin cancer, if we get it early enough and we cut the, the tumour out, it's gone. You are mm-hmm. effectively cured. Um, but for most cancers, by oversimplifying it in such a way and saying that we're going, we're going to cure this disease, we're going to work together and cure this disease... Mm-hmm. We get to this idea that it can be cured, that there can be a, a silver bullet answer. And and that's when the pseudoscientists can creep in because they can claim that they have the cure, that we already have the cure and that the scientists just don't want you to know about it. Um, and it's much mm-hmm. easier to believe that if, if across science and the media, you're being told that a cure is just around the corner. Um, especially mm-hmm. if you then believe as many do and and is to be honest the case that pharmaceutical companies want to make money um and so it's very easy to then twist that into well if they want to make money and this pseudoscientist is telling me that the cure the single cure is diet well they can't patent that they can't make money out of that and the truth is they'd find a way they'd find a way to make money out of it because you can make money out of anything if you if you figure it out right and they'd figure out a supplement or something that they could patent and sell. So it's mm-hmm. it's a fallacy as well. But because we've we've got this idea that pharmaceutical companies want to make money and um, cancer is something we can cure, we just need to find the cure, then it opens the door for people to believe all the other harmful misconceptions that we've got the cure, we're just hiding it, that we've... Um, Mm-hmm. We know the answer. It's just not something that Big Pharma can patent. Um, you know, all of these sorts of things. So, so this raises an interesting language question for me. You know, you've mentioned there are all these different kinds of cancer and they're all very different in how they act. What is the value of any of clustering them all together under the name cancer? Would, would, we, would, we, would we be better off if we just like thought of these as a bunch of different separate diseases or like in terms of getting people to understand how we're going to resolve or like improve our situation with regard to them? I think it would definitely help for people to understand that there is nuance. Maybe having that umbrella term of cancer is still useful because they are still doing similar things and there are hallmarks of what makes a cancer um, and and can't, things that are cancerous are doing very particular things. Um, the way they're doing those things can be very, very different from each different type of cancer. But broadly speaking, they're all doing similar things. They're, it, cells growing out of control, not knowing how mm-hmm. or when to die appropriately um, and starting to spread, find ways to spread throughout the body. So the umbrella term is useful but I think we need to understand that it's not just one single disease that we can target at that top level. We need to understand how all the different types of cancer work. And that's something we could we could improve how we communicate that so that people appreciate. And I think people are starting to appreciate it more. And you mm-hmm. do find in the media and, and, and when, when you talk to people about it, and I, because I give talks on cancer, I will get invariably get lots of people coming up to me and saying my uncle has this form of cancer or I had this form of cancer and they will talk to me about those conditions and quite frequently people will will say and that's one of the bad ones right or that's one of the good ones people recognize that there are different Mm -hmm. forms of cancer and they have different prognoses and 
we know more about some cancers than others and we're better at treating some cancers than others. And so it's starting to feed through, but just the level of complexity, if people understood the level of complexity, I think it would protect them more from some of the pseudoscience. Yeah, I think that's a common theme, right? That like the more we can help people understand that that science is this incredibly complex system the more it can become clear that these very simplistic answers can't really be functional for what we're actually dealing with yeah um so that being said right i'm curious what are major things that you would suggest people like me living normal adult lives should do if we want to avoid getting you know various kinds of cancer you already mentioned that we should consume massive quantities of blueberries so yeah. get on that. <laughs> all blueberry diet that is a cure <laughs> just, cancer. just blueberries you might find your fingers and lips turning purple um <laughs> will that actually happen is that real uh, i think if you ate lots of blueberries like if you're literally touching yeah. lots of blueberries the color's gonna gonna That's transfer fair. onto your, onto your fingers and lips i thought it would be more like a um uh, like if you the, drink uh, too much Sunny D and you turn, turn no, orange I was, I was thinking of the bur- uh the flamingos that turn pink because they eat shrimp <laughs> Um, I'm not sure. Uh, there are cases. I think there are cases that if if people eat or drink too much of a certain thing, like the the famous example being Sunny Delight. If you drink lots of Sunny Delight, mm-hmm. you might turn a slightly orange color. Um, but I think really? you I think you have to be taking in an awful lot of something to to change color. And it depends on the thing. Most things aren't going to change the color of your skin. All right. I'll keep that in mind when <laughs> so I come- <laughs> my pseudoscience diet. I'll make sure that, um, whatever food people are eating in large quantities in my fake diet is going to turn them the right shade or whatever <laughs> color I prefer? Um, no, the, the pro- people ask me this a lot. Um, what, what should we be doing to reduce our risk of cancer? The problem is it, it makes me sound like such a killjoy. Um, don't, <laughs> don't smoke. Smoking will give you cancer. It might now, is that, take is that a long... anything? Don't smoke anything? Don't smoke tobacco. Okay, so it is more tobacco you find? They find? Yeah, we, we, we know for certain that smoking tobacco, it's really interesting looking at some of the graphs because you see, you see the graphs of when um, cigarette smoking really kicked off and mm-hmm. um, almost exactly 20 years later, lung cancer cases spiked in exactly the same trajectory. Um, <laughs> like it, it's perfect. Mm. Um, We know for certain that smoking cigarettes will, or cigars, will give you cancer. Um, It might take a long time and you'll have lots of, you know, it depends on the, each person is slightly different and and everybody has slightly different experiences. So you might have your great grandmother who lived to 90 and smoked like a chimney her whole life and, and survived for ages. But if you lived long enough and smoked long enough, you would get lung cancer. Like it's, we know that that's, that connection is there. So smoking tobacco, generally avoid. Um, don't drink too much alcohol. Um, don't spend too long in the sun, wear sunscreen. Try to keep a, a quote unquote healthy weight. Um, and yeah, generally don't do any mm-hmm. of the fun stuff. Um, <laughs> keep a balanced diet. Eating too much sugar is not going to give you cancer. Um, but there are some foods that we know are linked to an increased risk of cancer. There was a massive story a few years ago when uh, all the media were worried that you should never eat bacon. Bacon will give you cancer. Mm. And there is. it. Eating smoked meats does increase your risk of um, colon and bowel cancer, uh, but only by a small amount. Like you don't want to eat. You don't want to eat only smoked meat all day, every day. But if you're eating mm-hmm. a healthy diet, I wouldn't worry too much about it. But generally, it's it's weighing up risk. It's this is this thing that I really, really, really enjoy, and it's going to mm-hmm. increase. You know, you, we're all going to. You could live a perfect life and still get cancer. Yeah. So this is the show where you can say we're all going to die. That's the moral. Yeah, yeah, we, okay. we are all going to die, and we're all going to we're all going to die of something. Uh, yeah, and yes. you know, you've just got to weigh up risk you know you want to live a happy as healthy life as possible and enjoy your life and feel good and and generally do well and and if you can't you know if if you can minimize your risk of certain things then then do your best to do that like there's no reason not to wear sunscreen unless you have really bad skin allergies that sunscreen is really bothering your skin or your 
you have particularly sensory problems and sunscreen really bothers bothers you in that way but for for the average person there's no reason not to wear sunscreen there's no reason not to avoid the sun like that's that's a no-brainer for me but um (laughs) and i i share your trepidation about this question not not just because i am a rabid hedonist and don't want to have my things taken away from me (laughs) but but also because there are i think legitimate concerns about the way that discussion of these sorts of behaviors turns into victim blaming for individuals who end up getting sick. So my personal experience with cancer has been uh, my extremely healthy, athletic, vegetarian wife almost dropping dead at 30 from acute myeloid leukemia. And, you know, like, yeah, that was that was a fun thing to go through in the American healthcare system. and the you know one of the things that we had to sort of the moral of the story that that was a hard one i think for uh us to work through was that like this was the result of dumb luck that this was not like something she did that caused this in any kind of way and so I'm, i'm curious how you feel like we like how do we balance talk of because you know if you go all too far in the dumb luck direction there's the concern that like people stop wearing sunscreen so like how do you how do you balance like i want to talk about these important factors but also i don't want to like shame individuals when when we're trying to balance out all of these competing um, issues it is it's a difficult balance i'm broadly on the side of we don't blame people for getting sick no matter how Mm -hmm. they get sick whether we think it's their own fault for smoking or, or, you know, whatever. We'd like, you got sick. It's not your fault. Even if you did something that increased your risk of getting sick, you still cannot pinpoint in that individual case what caused it. You can, mm-hmm. you can have a, a best guess, but you, you just can't. And even if somebody did something that we think increased their risk of a disease... So what, you know, we, we all do stupid things. We all do not stupid things that are just fun. Um, and mm. uh, we can't live our lives blaming ourselves for things that, that might have happened anyway. You know, lung cancer doesn't only happen to people who've smoked. Um, you know, these, these things could, mm-hmm. you could just, as you say, be in, incredibly unlucky. So um, I very much don't think we should blame people for getting sick but at the same time if people can do things to improve uh, to reduce their risks then that's great um if if they feel better doing that then that's great if that makes them feel like they're doing something positive in their lives then that's great um but also i think this this idea that we can control it as much as it's important to understand that lifestyle does increase our risks we obviously, mm-hmm. we, we can't all change our, sorry, I'm, I'm kind of, I've got a jumble of thoughts that I'm trying to get into words right it's now. Okay. So I'm just it's jumping from topic tension. to topic. Um, so um, obviously there's lots of things that we just, um, we can't really avoid. You know, there's lifestyle things we can't avoid. We can't avoid if we live and work in an urban area that has a lot of air pollution. We can't avoid that. Um, mm-hmm. You know, though some of these lifestyle risks that are increasing our chances of cancer are out beyond our control. Um, mm-hmm. And then on top of that, a lot of the pseudoscientists use this this idea that people people really cling to it. The idea that I can do something about it. I think it's because a lot of people, mm-hmm. if they're diagnosed with cancer, it's big and it's scary and it's it feels like you have no control whatsoever Mm -hmm. and thinking that you can do something about it you can change your lifestyle in some way to help treat it or you could have changed your lifestyle in some way to prevent it or especially if you've if you've lost a family member to cancer and you you want to feel like you regain that control people Mm -hmm. can feel like they want to do something active and a lot of um proponents of pseudoscience will jump on that and will say you know these are all the things that you can do and I can sell you this diet and I can sell you this remedy and I can sell you this supplement and you need to take these all day every day perfectly and if you if it doesn't work you didn't do it right Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's it's your fault you um you did something wrong and this this happens both with prevention but also with with pseudoscientists um claiming that treatments work you have to take this diet perfectly and you have to use the organic versions of everything. And if you don't survive, 
you didn't do it right. You didn't get the right food. You didn't pay the right clinician. You did, you, you did something wrong and it absolves them of any responsibility and it allows them to protect their pseudoscience and keep giving it to other people without feeling like they're doing something wrong. Yeah, and this is where I have to start controlling my rage reactions pretty <laughs> substantially. And like you've sat through uh, my rants about um, luck and control and those sorts of things. <laughs> it, it may or may not be the case that my already um, burgeoning views about lack of free will were bolstered by several years living through the American healthcare system while being a primary caregiver for someone with cancer. Um, yeah. I may have shifted some towards thinking that anyone who makes the kind of arguments that you are making is deeply morally problematic. Um, I want to talk a little bit before we get into the alternative medicine stuff, because I do think there's a related issue here that I experienced directly in this process um, that I think also helps the alternative medicine folks. And it's the, you know, especially when we're talking about, we'll talk about the, the bad cancers now, right? Like not the ones that can be cured with a pill out of, you know, outpatient kind of stuff, yeah. but like the, the cancers like leukemia where it just the best treatment available absolutely destroys the person's body like really they have to like take you apart and put you back together in a way yeah. um are we anywhere moving towards like a replacement for those kinds of like chemo radiation methods of dealing with serious cancer or is it always just going to be that with increasing like making it as minimally invasive and harmful as possible while still being this very nasty kind of treatment? So I think this is one of those things that it depends on where we are in the research process for those those types of cancer. And also this this idea of cure feeds into it as well. Mm -hmm. So the problem is if you're aiming to just cure a cancer, no matter what treatment you have, if it prolongs life by one, two, five, ten years, you're never going to feel like it's good enough. The researchers who are working on it, and uh, you know, they they will mm -hmm. want to get it to cure level because their funding bodies have been and charity bodies have been claiming that we're going to cure cancer, and we they want to get to a point of curing it, and so they will work for treatments that are getting them to that goal. If we try to aim for, instead of trying to cure a cancer, we accept that cancer, generally speaking, um, isn't going to be cured, but we can prolong a patient's life and prolong a patient's healthy and happy life until they die of something else. And that's the mm -hmm. goal. Then the ha having a happy and healthy life while on treatment becomes more important. And so you mm -hmm. have to find treatments that are less physically grueling for the patient. And I think that shift in, in goal is really important for, for trying to shift how, how we develop cancer treatments. Of course, if we're fairly early on in the research process and we're working on a cancer that is really, really hard to treat, we might just have to keep going for the really hard stuff until we find something that works and then we can start to work on making it gentler on the patient in general. Um, but we are definitely trying to do that. So there's some really cool research in the nanomedicine field where the idea is Wait, to... nanobots? <laughs> well, so the idea is you wrap up your cancer drug in a nanobubble. So it's... I'm really on board for this. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> so it's completely protected. Your, your normal healthy human cells are completely protected from... Uh, the, the nasty drug that makes normal cells feel shit as well as, as um, the cancer cells. Mm -hmm. And you allow it to pass through the body until it reaches the tumor. And it's more likely to flow. We think it's more likely to flow into tumors anyway, because um, tumors have leaky blood vessels. So the, the nanobubbles get through more easily there than anywhere else in the body. And once it's there, you can attack it with a, an ultrasound wave burst the bubbles, release the drug, the drug just gets into the tumor, which mm. is fantastic because it's yeah, then not really affecting cool. your normal cells. So there's really cool research into that. It's harder for things like leukemia because the cancer's in your blood and your blood is everywhere. Yeah. And so <laughs> your drug needs to attack cells that are in the blood. 
Um, so that gets tricky. But even then, we're, we're starting to find new ways that we can treat um, patients in different ways. There's there's cool stuff to do with um, trying to train your immune system to tackle the um, to tackle the cancer cells. And so you take the you take the immune cells out of the patient's body, modify them slightly, put them back in. And now it recognizes the cancer and it can start to attack the cancer cells. And that has a different set. It still has a, a lot of side effects but it's a different set of side effects that might be more tolerable to some patients so we're mm-hmm. we're starting to think about things like this but for too long we've just been too keen to to find a cure and not mm-hmm. really prioritized the because because the idea is if you can cure something you can give a treatment for six months or a year or or a little bit longer and then the patient's cured and they don't need to be on treatment anymore so you just go through that grueling period for a fraction of time Mm-hmm. If we if we now get into the um, idea that we can have patients on on long term treatment, we need to find a way to make it more tolerable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's definitely not the experience I've had. That like, I mean, obviously this ours was a particularly harsh case, but like, it's not like you go through six months of hell and then bounce back to normal right it's like six months of hell and then your body is coping with the fact that it was radiated and chemoed forever um so like that is really interesting the part about targeting the tumors that does seem uh, i'm curious yeah and this is necessary because and and i think it's one thing that that people often fail to really to really grasp the importance of cancer cells are normal your normal body cells gone wrong they're your normal cells that have acquired some sort of mutation, some sort of change that's made them a cancer cell. And so anything you give, you give a treatment into the body, these cancer cells look very, very similar to your normal cells. You just have to hope that the treatment you mm-hmm. give affects the cancer cells more than your normal cells. So right. treatments are often going to be difficult to tolerate for patients because they're affecting every cell in your body. <laughs> Almost. Yeah, yeah um, and in Lou's case, because she got a stem cell transplant from her sister, they had to literally kill her immune system kill down everything, to the ground yeah. and then regrow it with her sister's cells. So, like, yeah, it's it's a, a nasty process. And, and the reason I bring it up, because I want to talk about the alternative medicine stuff, is that, like, I think one of many advantages that alternative medicine has strategically is that they can make this argument that, the treatments for cancer are poison because they are like they like there's just no way around the reality that you're pumping heavy metals into somebody and like doing it in such a way where you hope that you poison the right cells more than the wrong cells right yeah exactly And, and it's so easy then for for the alternative medicine world to say you know these are toxins these are toxic these are poisons these are these are attacking your body and yeah they are because that's unfortunately that's how cancer treatment has to work at the moment. There are some cancer treatments where we can just cut it out, and if we can just cut it out, that's great. Um, mm-hmm. But that's the cases where you can just cut it out are few and far between. You often need to combine that with additional treatments that are not fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so but it works. Let's talk about. I know. Let's talk about talking to folks who are maybe sliding towards alternative medicine. I know that you're sort of down on uh, referring to these people as stupid or being parts of cults. I think that you and I are both sort of anxious about the way that both atheism and skepticism can come come off as being uh, very arrogant and condescending when dealing with the people that we are in theory trying to help. Um, What have you found to be like functional methods for engaging with folks who are being targeted by alternative medicine um, pseudoscience? Uh, There's depends what you mean by functional. Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) My bar is very low, so don't worry. (laughs) (laughs) I've I've never I've never been in a position where I've changed somebody's mind, but I think when when you're fully into uh, the alternative medicine world it's very hard to come back from that so for me I think I think engage if we if we want to stop people taking alternative medicine if that's the goal and and there's there's different goals in in different sorts of conversations but if the goal is to stop people taking alternative medicine I think there's no point engaging with people who have cancer because at that point 
your belief system is almost too late. I think if you're already in the alternative world when you get cancer, you're more inclined mm-hmm. to go further down that route. And it gets very hard to change that mind. And it's cruel to, to try and tell people that the thing that they're putting their hope onto isn't going to work. And I think a lot of people find that really, really hard that they've got a family member. And I'm not, and I'm not saying you shouldn't try. And I'm not saying that, um, you know, if, if you've got a family member who's kind of teetering on the line of alternative medicine, that it isn't productive to try and compassionately redirect them um but if if somebody's fully ingrained and they've got cancer i think it's quite cruel to try and tell them that they're wrong and to try and take that away from them if you're Mm. earlier in the sliding scale then then the trick is to try and engage in a way that is that is compassionate that that asks them to really think ask them questions about where um how these treatments work and and if they really think that makes sense and ask them questions about what they understand about their cancer. And you can try to engage in a compassionate way that at least helps them to critically think about it themselves. Telling anybody, you're wrong, this doesn't work, science says this, isn't going to help. But trying to help them to ask those questions, does this work, is more useful, I think. Um, But for me, the most effective way to reach the most people when it comes to alternative medicine is to get them before then, before they've been diagnosed with cancer, because at that point, they're just hypothetical beliefs. They're not actually affecting the way that they, that they survive essentially. Um, Mm -hmm. And it can be easier to try and uh, change people's minds if they have less vested in it. Um, but that's if, if we want to try and stop somebody taking alternative medicine in terms of actually just trying to engage with people who are, are interested in that, which which is also a productive conversation to have. Again, okay. just being polite and compassionate and asking questions and, and being genuinely interested in the person you're talking to. Um, I talked to a, a directly to a young man who, who unfortunately died last year, who was... He was a proponent of uh, Gerson therapy and um, he, he'd he been in our, one of our local newspapers advertising Gerson therapy. And we, we as the Merseyside Skeptic Society thought this was a major problem because the, the article was very promoting of, of this pseudoscience. So we wrote a letter specifically targeting, you know, saying we think patients have the right to choose. They can make a decision for themselves. Um, but we should... Um, we shouldn't be advertising this in the local press and we shouldn't be um, trying to promote this to people. So we kind of got to a position where we were um, only being critical of the treatment and the advertising of the treatment and not being critical of the patient who was a big part of the story. Mm-hmm. And he then reached out to us and said, I'd like to chat to you about this. And, and I said, you know what? come to my lab and you can have a look around and we'll have a chat and we'll go for coffee. And he, he seemed up for it. We didn't end up doing it. I think he ended up going to Mexico for, for treatment and then got very, very sick. Um, but for me, that's a way to engage with people is to say, I know you're not stupid because you're really engaged with the science of how cancer works. You're just misapplying that science and you've come to a conclusion that doesn't quite work, but you are more engaged than many people following treatments you are incredibly engaged in how the science works you're incredibly engaged in some of the the molecular intricacies of how cancer works and most people don't want to know about that because it's complicated and boring to be honest so (laughs) let's 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 have a conversation about that and and let's i'm not going to insult your intelligence by just blindly telling you you're wrong because that's never going to work I, there's a couple of things here that I'm curious about. First, I, I wonder, do, do you feel like your that skeptical work in this area is going to be at a perpetual sort of tactical disadvantage because you're up against individuals who are offering people hope? And it's just, it's such a grind to be the the person who's like, you know, without being horrible, trying to like limit these things that you like you said earlier you know you were saying if somebody's deep into that hope place already it's cruel to pull them out of it and i'm i, I was i've just been going back and forth about like how i feel about that because 
I'm sympathetic to that, like, don't unplug them from the Matrix mindset. And at the same time, like... If you can oh, save just, a life. It's, it's, right. It's just so... Um, I, I, you know, I have a lot of anger in this area, as I've, yeah. I've made abundantly clear. And I don't, you know, I have a very hard time keeping the rage at bay when it comes to the people who are peddling these things. It's easier with the people who are getting pulled into it. But it is still, it feels like, you know, how do you ever sort of gently enough convey that like this is not you know that like you shouldn't be promoting this stuff in newspapers like you're saying like anything like that it's just so difficult to to tell people i mean i have the same um debates in my head about like trying to pull people away from religion versus just letting them you know as long as they're you know ethical religious people just let them be in that kind of way and this this is just like a worse version of that for me yeah and there's and there's different levels of it because I don't want to say fortunately, but but sort of. Um, in in many of these cases, the people who are going for the alternative treatment are people who've already been told by their doctors that there's nothing more mm-hmm. they can do, and it's still really harmful to go down the alternative medicine route for all the reasons I said earlier on um, when we were talking about uh, something else about how people are spending money and time and energy on something that isn't going to work and they could be spending that time saying goodbye to their families or enjoying their lives. Um, So it's still really, really harmful. But it's not quite the same as if I I convince them I can save their life. Um, Mm -hmm. But at the same time, uh, it's, it's hard. I don't... I think if somebody's fully deep into it and you're cl- especially if you're close to them if this is a family member I think a lot of people choose to bite their tongue because mm-hmm. because they want to keep that relationship and unfortunately a lot of a lot of alternative medicine proponents they build a narrative around isolating the patient from their support networks um I don't uh, that's going to mm-hmm. induce your rage. <laughs> I don't think that's always. Yes. <laughs> I don't think that's always an intentional thing. I think that many alternative practitioners genuinely believe that conventional medicine is toxic or is cult-like, and that people are sucked in, and that family members just are part of the cult, and they believe. You know, they. I, I do feel that a lot of them genuinely believe that. Of course, there are some absolute Mm -hmm. fraudsters who know that their treatment doesn't work but a lot of them they genuinely believe it and they're trying to support patients and they are telling them that if their family members disagree well then they must just be misguided and on the side of of conventional medicine and part of that cult and Mm -hmm. and that's that's really difficult to get past so it is very it's much it's much better in some cases to just keep that relationship with your family member and be supportive to them and and hope that they, you can gently give them enough information without mm-hmm. destroying that relationship and hopefully support them in the best way that you can. Um, but to answer your question kind of specifically about do we, are we, are we kind of fighting a losing battle? Are we hands tied behind our back? I think in a lot of ways we are. Um, Alternative practitioners are not bound by the science and they're not bound by, um, by, by, you know, doctors have got to think about what's going to work for the vast majority of their patients. They've got to work to their kind of lowest common denominator. Um, And alternative practitioners don't need to do that. They can say, we've got a cure, this will cure you which a doctor will never say, even if the treatment that they're offering is as good as a cure, they will never say that it's a cure. <laughs> right. And I mean, like I teach bioethics and one of the major rules is you don't dangle, you know, new treatments in front of people who have terminal illnesses, that it's a highly coercive behavior to yeah. even try to suggest that someone should get in on a study or something with the suggestion that it might help their situation. Like you don't you really don't do that in medicine. And I just don't understand why alternative practitioners are allowed to do exactly that all yeah. the fucking time. And that's the thing is that the, the, 
that in the medical world, we do think about bioethics. We do think about what is okay to say to patients and, and, and how is the kindest way to deal with it. And, and we think about informed consent and allowing patients to make their own choices. And, and alternative practitioners often don't have any sort of rigor around that because that it's, it's not regulated in the same way. So frustrating. Um, so uh, maybe shifting away from like the practitioners to the alternative practices themselves. I'm, I'm curious, much like there are better and worse forms of cancer, do you feel like there might be like better and worse forms of alternative medicine? Like, uh, you know, if you if you have a friend or someone who knows somebody who's sliding in that direction, are there like forms of alternative medicine that you would encourage them to pursue over other ones to like mitigate the harm in some way? Some there's some really bad ones, and and they're, they're bad ones in different ways. So, some of the worst, some of the ones that feel the worst often and can be in a lot of ways are things like um, black salve, which is given for cancer often. So this is a, a caustic mm-hmm. um, treatment that you apply to the skin, and it, it literally burns the skin. Um, oh. The skin will burn so badly that that a scab will fall off. Um, and, and practitioners will tell you that that's your tumour. Your tumour has gone. Um, uh, and it's it's physically distressing to see cases where that's been used. You know, people people have used it for skin cancer on their nose and lost their entire nose. Um, it, it's, it, it's physically very grim. Um, but then there's things that are kind of seem on the surface less harmful because it's a change in diet. So Gerson therapy that I mentioned before is a treatment where you take juices every hour, hourly juices um, for like 12, 13 hours a day, um, which are just, you know, vegetable juices mostly. And mm-hmm. doesn't sound, you know, apart from the fact that you're taking vegetable juice every hour, doesn't sound too bad. And then there's, you have to do coffee enemas five times a day, which isn't fun but tolerable maybe um the the actual treatment itself feels kind of less physically harmful than um than something like black salve but if you're on that treatment you're spending every waking hour thinking about supplements thinking about juices thinking about what foods to buy um making sure you eat exactly the right thing making sure you um do your coffee enemas at the right time making sure that you like it's it's micromanaging every minute of your day and then never mind the fact that you're shitting constantly because you're taking juices every hour of the day and it's vegetables and you've got so much fiber that you're you're just shitting mm-hmm. constantly um <laughs> it's not a fun existence and this can be like three years of treatment of that micromanagement constantly thinking about it worrying the anxiety of thinking whether you're doing it right and if you're not doing it right then you're going to die and that that is utterly miserable but on the yeah, surface it me- go ahead no yeah no it just makes me think of we had um dave warnock on the show a while back talking about dying out loud because he, he'd been diagnosed um with a terminal illness and he's like you know living his life up in the meantime um and it's just like what he's up to you know smoking cigars out on porches versus like what is required by these kinds of methods i think you know it really does matter to me because i do think that at the end of the day this is the one life we get and if you're like torturing people for the end of it in this vain hope of extending the torture a little bit longer that's just not the right way to deal with end of life issues yeah, for me, and least. that and that's why absolutely I think that there is a, a legitimate case for for people who choose at late stages of cancer to choose not to take conventional therapy either, um, to say mm-hmm. Do you know what this this conventional therapy is going to give me six months a year more, but it's going to make me miserable. I'm going to choose not to do that, and that's that's valid in some cases for for some patients. Um, mm-hmm. as long as they're making that decision in an informed way and they really understand all the details about it and they've not just been scared off the cancer treatment by the media or by some alternative therapist, which clearly does happen mm-hmm. as well. How do you see this whole realm mutating and metastasizing in the age of COVID and you know QAnon and widespread conspiracy theories? Yeah, it's definitely, so I feel like conspiracy theories have been on the rise for a long time, for the last probably eight or nine or ten years. Um, 
and they're, they're definitely amplifying significantly around COVID. Um, in some ways, what I'm seeing around cancer is either people aren't thinking about it as much or people are engaging more with the idea that we're not we're not getting treatment quick enough at the minute because our hospitals are struggling with to mm-hmm. handle covid and so and we locked everything down and we didn't quite think about how to do that and so treatments were delayed for some people and people are recognizing that that's an issue and that's quite an interesting conversation um but at the same time the conspiracy theories really do there's conspiracy theories in every single field there are lots of conspiracy theories in cancer and those those are only going to increase the idea that um big pharma are, are hiding the cure because they can't patent it or um you know th- there are a lot of conspiracy theories around that i've been told i'm part of a conspiracy um that yeah that... i mean well, well and this is my concern right because a lot of this stuff is based in conspiratorial thinking even if individuals aren't always in that place that like there is this um, sort of widespread uh, mistrust or something. And as like, and even if like people get started off in conspiracy theories that have nothing to do with medicine, as I think we've seen from, you know, us listening to things like Be Reasonable, right? Once you're in the door of the conspiracy world, because the fundamental framework is there's a they who is hiding some information from you, it becomes impossible, it seems like, not to slide into other kinds of conspiracy theories. Yeah, so yeah, just, and, and yeah. absolutely, like, once you believe one conspiracy theory, you're more likely to believe more of them. And then if you get diagnosed with cancer as well, you're going to go down that route. Like, it, it is, it it feels inevitable. And I, I'm, I'm wrangling with it a lot at the minute because we're seeing um, QAnon has hit British shores. We're seeing protests that are... Yeah. Um, that are not. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. We're, we're exporting our best. <laughs> um, and it's, it, it doesn't get predominantly called QAnon here. It gets it gets called Save Our Children mostly. It's, yeah, it's, so it's much very worse. insidious. Um, and I'm wrangling with it a lot because as part of the skeptical community, we've seen conspiracy theories increasing over the last several years and it feels utterly inevitable that it's going to get more mainstream and it definitely is getting more mainstream and more norm, quote unquote normal people are believing in conspiracy theories and it's, it's getting into my Instagram feed and my Facebook feed and everywhere. And it feels utterly inevitable and I feel completely impotent to change it or stop it or prevent it in any way. Um, and I don't know what we do about it. Okay. I mean, I don't feel great about your answer there, but I do feel better <laughs> about it in the sense that it's my exact answer too for this epistemic crisis that we're sliding into. So like, I'm, I'm comforted to know that you as an expert haven't come <laughs> up with anything better than I've come up with. I think that makes me, yeah, perversely better in some ways. Um, is there anything, I mean, I know as we're running short on time here, is there anything that like silver lining you want to put around that cloud to say, here's where things might be improving slightly or maybe where we have some hope? I, I think the the average person is getting more engaged with cancer and, and all all kind of medical treatments and things. And I think people are, on the whole, leaning more, starting to lean back towards experts. We had a long time of people leaning against experts. And over the last few months, I feel like there's been a bit more of a shift back towards experts. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I hate saying that because I hate this ivory tower idea that, that experts know best. Um, but we do. We need experts to help treat us for things. But, but we do. Uh, we do. We do. In fact, know best. So just just listen to what we're saying. Sometimes. <laughs> um, and so having That's a nicer way to put that, I'm sure. Yeah, <laughs> having having normal people starting to lean back towards experts and and engage with what the experts think about how COVID is progressing is valuable, and I, I hope that 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 will have some positive effect. But I guess mm-hmm. we'll see. I, I guess we will see. Um, and maybe we can get you back on at some point because we haven't even had a chance to talk about the intersection of all of this and gender, which I know is something else that you work on and is something that also is rage-inducing for me. So we'll have to do yeah, maybe a, no, a part two. <laughs> you know. there's, 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 I, I've got my finger in lots of pies. There's lots of interesting things um, to talk about, especially with just just me- medicine in general. Like there's, there's stuff to do mm-hmm. with pain. Like it's not all about cancer. But, um, no. 
Yeah, for sure. Lots of void pies and um, always fun. But before I let you go, of course, I have to subject you to my own specific kind of chemo. Um, I've got to put you through the enlightening round. Enlightenment comes from within. Okay, so I, I believe you're familiar, but for folks who are not familiar, I am going to give you a series of things. You are going to tell me, are these things real or not real? As a skeptic, you are an expert on what is real and not real. So this <laughs> be no problem for you, I believe. <laughs> are you ready? I guess so, yeah. <laughs> all right, well, let's, let's check first of all, is anything real? Oh, God, that's too... F- I'm not, I don't, I'm not a philosopher. Um, yes, real. Okay, let's, let's find out what's real. Is <laughs> the external world real? Yes. Are colors real? Yes. Depending on what you mean by color. Shh. Is <laughs> consciousness real? Yes. Okay. Free will? Well, no. <laughs> yes, converse. <laughs> uh, selves or persons? Yes. Okay. Genders? No ish. Depending uh, on no. what you mean by gender. No, 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 no. <laughs> Races? <laughs> no. Okay. Species? No. <laughs> Morality? Yes. Rights? Yes. Okay. Knowledge? Yes. God or gods? No. <laughs> Society. Yes. Mm. Money. No. Numbers. I wish they weren't. <laughs> uh, fictional characters. No. Holes, like a hole in the ground. Oh. No. <laughs> Chairs. Yes. Sandwiches? Yes. Science? I'm not consistent at all on any of these. Um, yes. You're doing great. Natural <laughs> laws? Yes. Beauty? No. Love? No. <laughs> so- sorry to my partner. Um, <laughs> No. Okay. And finally, time. Yes. Okay. How do you feel? <laughs> there are a lot of question marks there. <laughs> and no you actually... no consistency. <laughs> you hated that exactly as much as Marsh predicted that you would hate that. So <laughs> I really appreciate that you you followed through. That was some very satisfying uncertainty in your answers. <laughs> uh. <laughs> I don't. I shouldn't appreciate torture that much. If, if I set a better <laughs> example, ethically speaking. Um, well, Alice, he, this has been did, so much fun. Yeah, go ahead. He did. He did uh, text me with some glee, telling me that I would have to do this round. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he will very much enjoy the results. Um, so, thank you so much for coming on, Alice. I really appreciate it. Do you want to let folks know where they can find your materials one more time? Um. So I'm. Podcasting at Skeptics with a K, um, which you can find at the Merseyside Skeptics Society website, which is merseysideskeptics.org.uk. And then um, I'm also at The Skeptic, deputy editor now of The Skeptic, which is the skeptic, uh, which is skeptic.org.uk, mm-hmm. I think. It's a pretty good mag. There's some pretty uh, interesting publications in that mag. Yes, we've had some, we've had some great articles from, from people like yourself, in fact. <laughs> There will be a forthcoming article on the enlightening round, so I'm sure you'll be able to personally sympathize with that. (laughs) Okay, well, thanks so much. Thank you very much for having me. As a human, I was ill-equipped to thank you, but as myself, you have my everlasting gratitude. As always, I'd like to thank our listeners and patrons who make the show possible. We've got quite a few new patrons recently, so I'd like to thank Rambo Billy, Matthew Brown, former internet spaceship politician, Jess Abels, Luis Fernando Rodriguez, Nestor Buen, 
Intellectual Darkwave, Curdy, Rinthrin, uh, and Grant Godso. And as always, thanks to our $20 tier Duke patrons, blacknonbelievers.com, 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 Chad T., Jesse Rabinowitz, and Brenda Goodman, and our newest $20 patron, Patrick. Thank you very much. And most of all, all of the void thanks to our top tier patrons, Dave Maslich, the creepy eyes that stare at me from the void, and our newest top patron, Big Easy Blasphemy. Thank you all so much. If you'd like to support the show, please subscribe and leave us a five-star rating and a review on podcast apps. Follow us on Twitter at ETVPod. And if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you early access to episodes and our bonus book club content. Most of all, and I cannot stress this enough, you are the void and the void is you.